Yeah, my dad played ball all the way through college and had an opportunity to play NBA ball at How the time. How tall is he? He's six seven. Thank you for taking this time to come here because actually when I first started this podcast two years ago, you were one of the first people I came up to um, to ask, would you be on the podcast? And you said, sure, Lance, but you're so busy because you're doing basketball, you're giving out to charities, you're everywhere, not only because of your height, but because of your personality and you're so giving and everybody wants to be around you. So this is really a pleasure for me to have this opportunity to have you on. Right. Great. Well, you know, our friendship goes back a long ways from when my daughter was That's right. at Nishimachi and, yes, you know, the I can and uh, gymnastics and everything else that we were with. Um, geez, I don't want to say how many That's years right. ago. That's been a long time. How old yeah. is your daughter now, by the way? She's 25. 25. Yeah. And she only couldn't come to the class because of her height. She started getting too tall and I couldn't right. spot her well. <laughs> <laughs> She's so tall. Couldn't do those backflips anymore, huh? Right. Yeah. Let's start off with, where were you born, Dan? So I was born in San Jose, California, um, back in 1966. So um, it was a good time, you know, living there with my older brother and my three younger sisters growing up. Um, two boys and three girls. Two boys went came first, and then we had three younger sisters, yeah. How many years difference between you and your siblings? So my mom and dad were busy, you know, we had five kids in six years so we were basically growing up all the same age which means a lot of drama and a lot of you know pushing and shoving and you know trying to get the attention of mom and dad but um, it's amazing now that we're all the same age and we can kind of share all the similarities and things that we've gone through when we had troubles we talked to each other when we, you know and you around. do that a lot we do you know it's nice with the internet and with everything that's changed if you don't have to get on a phone or you don't have to write a letter you actually get to see people now do you find that COVID brought you close together as far as that one or were you already close we were already close I think it opened up the doors I think a little more for our parents mm -hmm. who were kind of forced to figure out how to use zoom and the FaceTime are your parents still together um, no they actually were divorced when I it was about 13 years old yeah. um, but they remain friends and it was kind of one of those unique situations that my mom finished raising the kids and she wanted to move on and my dad still wanted someone to take care of him a little bit and so they're kind of like okay well it's not going to work and let's go our own ways and they did and they're both happy and they're still friends today and you know my mom will come down and check up on my dad who's having some health issues these days but um yeah it's nice it's, it's so he never remarried he remarried, okay. and she remarried twice, okay. and is single again, so, you know, she's a little pickier than he is, I don't know <laughs> how we can say that, but um, anyway, like I said, it, it's nice, we, you know, we give each other calls and we talk to each other every, at least once a week, twice a week, That's we're right. in touch with each other, and brothers and sisters, and uh, so it's good. Yeah. What were you like as a child? Were you more academic, or were you more sports-minded, or did you have a combination? Um, you know, my brother and I are 10 months apart, you know, Irish twins, okay. um, and so it meant one of us was going to do one thing, one of us was going to do another, basically. You know, we weren't, we competed a little at the beginning, or younger age, with sports and academics, and I won. <laughs> really? I basically won. He's bigger and stronger. He's just as... Is he just as tall as you two? He's about 6'5". I'm 6'8", 
six nine, okay. right? So he was as tall, almost as tall as I was, but two hundred and fifty pounds and just strong, solid. right? Solid. And he was a protector of the family. You know, people weren't going to mess with us, no matter how much he says yelled at us. Nobody was going to touch us, right? Um, so it's nice. It's a special relationship that we had. Eventually, mm-hmm. it turned into something that we can really share a lot right now. Wow. So, what sports? Did, were you more sports minded then? Or I was definitely you? more sports minded than him. I'm, you know, I take after my dad. Blonde hair, blue eyes, like my dad, but you mm-hmm. can't tell these days. Right. Right. <laughs> blue eyes are still there. <laughs> um, Your father was really sports minded too. Yeah, my dad played ball all the way through college and had an opportunity to play NBA ball at How the time. How tall was he? He's six seven. So it comes from your father's side, I'm assuming. Definitely from my father's side. My, my grandfather used to play basketball when he still had the cage. And You're yeah, kidding me. Yeah, no, my grandfather was 6'6". Six, six. So for his generation, he was a giant. He said he, they used to have people uh, sitting by the light switch because when fights broke out in those games, they had to have someone turn off the lights so they could fight. So going through school, you knew real, did you get your height real quick or did you, because some kids, hmm. from me teaching, I realized, they can stay one height then all of a sudden they start to blossom. Yeah. What yeah. was yours like? So, you know, I started basketball playing at the YMCA, the YBA is what they called it, it was a youth league, and I was never the tallest. Um, so that's, you know, eight, nine years old, ten years old, and I was, I was tall, but not the tallest, right? Okay. Um, I hit my growth spurt in middle school, in junior high. Um, I went into junior high school maybe five, six, you know, so, and I was playing in the band, in the jazz band, rather than playing on the basketball team in seventh grade. And in eighth grade, I met a couple guys who wanted to come out for the basketball team. Okay. And so I joined the Peter Burnett Bobcats in San Jose, California in eighth grade. And that was when I first started playing <clears throat> really organized basketball. Right. Um, and we had an amazing team, some real good athletes. Um, we ended up being number two in Northern California. Is that when you hit your growth spurt? And then, so I finished maybe 5'10". So I, I was tall. Wait, wait, did your junior high, I don't know, did you guys seventh through ninth with junior high? Actually seventh, eighth. In California, only two we went years through sixth grade in elementary school, seventh and eighth, just two years of uh, junior high school. Because mine was when I was doing it, old right. days used to be seven, eighth, and ninth. Okay. And high school was tenth through twelfth. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. No, they they uh, they made it just two years. Two years. And then we was it a separate school? school or was it? It still was separate, not connected to the high school. Right. So was ours. So yeah. we had three years. Well, that's interesting. So it was elementary school, one school. Right. And junior high, junior was, one high was one school, and then school. high school was one school. Yeah. Yeah. So you went seventh to eighth. So you came out. You went in five seven, five, five six. six, five seven. Came out five ten, and then or five eleven. I started my freshman year in high school six three. Six three. So I went about four inches over in the a summer, year yeah. over the summer. Wow. So so people yeah. didn't recognize you when you came back. It was you like, were looking down. Yeah, stretching, knees hurting, aching. Right. Of course. Right. Yes. That's another issue that people don't right. realize. Yeah. Because yeah. you have to get adjusted to a brand new body, a brand new. Yeah. Well, how was that easy or hard for you? Did you? Well, it was good. It's like you know, I had, I wasn't playing ball with my brother, but my, all my cousins, they have eight, so they beat us, right? So we had eight cousins, four, four boys, five boys, three girls, 
and so we would always get together, you know, and play ball, play any sport really. Right, right, right. And my dad had the keys to the local high school and gym, so we were always in the gym together and running around. And my dad played ball through college. He actually played ball on scholarship at Santa Clara University, where I played basketball. Mm -hmm. So we played at the same university on scholarship. Was he? What did your father do? What was his job? So he was a high school teacher for forty plus years. What did he teach? He taught um, sociology, psychology, basically. So. And your mother? Studies. Did she work? My mom didn't work. She did a lot of art, very artistic. Um, she would run more of a stay-at-home mom, but very community-oriented. And she would, you know, friends' basement, she would open up an art school for kids after school, and we'd all go over there, and, you know, we'd run in between each other's houses. It was, it was a really open style of being yeah, right. raised in downtown San Jose at the time. And we uh, were really lucky to have both sides of that mm -hmm. um, you know my dad was also a cross-country coach so he's still always connected with sports so I had a lot of good training when I was young and yeah. the competitive side of me you know came from both of them but definitely from my father when it came to basketball and sports and you're telling me that you you, you grew up in a very open household mm -hmm. that had a lot of energy and it attracted a lot of people what yeah. was that like and when did it start happening when did you start realizing that yeah so because my father was a teacher, we had summers free, right? So we would do travel when we were young, that we'd get in a car and he'd, we'd drive to New York or up to Canada or all over the country, really, with the, my brother and I, then my sisters as they came along. Um, and for whatever reason, the five kids or just the energy that our the house that we lived in um, attracted people from all over the world. You know, we had people from Germany, we had people from Micronesia, we had people from Japan. What, what, what were their ages, basically? Were they always young people? Yeah, or? yeah, they were all young. Okay. Um, you know, young, you know, 20s, you know, just people trying to check things out and do their well, own how thing. How would they know to come to your home? Did your father have an advertisement out or something, or what was it? No, no, it, a lot of it was just, you know, Guzan, it just happened. Really? And uh, some of it was connected with Santa Clara and through churches and things that he was associated with um, because he was, you know, through school. But a lot of it was just, you know, a guy from Japan, Masahara, came through on his bicycle. He was riding his bicycle around the world. And he just stopped at our house for whatever reason it was and came in and saw the kids and said hello and he ended up staying with us for a little while and he nicknamed my sister and I you know I had a s big smile so I was Yukio is my Japanese nickname and here I am in Japan you know 50 years later right. and you said you're natu naturalized I am naturalized in 96 uh, I, I took Japanese citizenship um, to allow me to continue to play basketball. We haven't even gotten into my basketball oh, career sure yet, right? No, no, no. So, um, you know, in Japan there was always a limit on foreign players. Mm -hmm. And so by me jo getting Japanese nationality, I'd already been married to my wife for a couple years, who's Japanese. And so we decided it would be good for me to try to see if we could do it. And what, you, what year are you talking about now? 95. 95? Yeah. 
Nobody was doing anything, were we? No, no, I was the Rui Ramos of uh, basketball. Sure yeah, yeah, I was the first non-Japanese blooded. Right, because Ramos foreigner. did it. Right, Ramos did it yeah. in soccer. Yeah. So back to you. So you, so you decided to do it in '95. Mm -hmm. What was the process like? Process was a lot of paperwork, um, getting the right people to support the, the Japan national team. The basketball association supported me. I was playing for Toyota Tsusho in Nagoya at the time. So we had Toyota somewhat backing us as well, um, you know, putting in the paperwork, doing the interviews, proving that I wasn't a risk and, you know, check, check, no debits to my name. And it actually took about a year only for me to get that to go through. Okay. And then I was on the national team playing and trying to compete for the world championships, right? So all the time I've known you, you've been Japanese, basically. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> pretty much. Yeah, since Miriam was born, I was. I'd have never known it. Yeah, right. Right. I don't look Japanese. <laughs> Is it? I, I think it's your height that threw me off. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So That's it's you know it's worked out well. You know, I I had a thirteen fourteen year professional career here, playing after I finished college at Santa Clara with an economics degree. Um, I was going to go into business, do some other things, and then I had an offer to, you know, to try out with the Sa with the Sonics up in Seattle. So I tried out with the Sonics. That was back in '88, um, and they invited me back to after the they invited me back after the rookies camp in summer league, and then they made a big trade for Michael Cage. I don't know if you remember that name. Mm -hmm. um, but again, big power forward, and there was no room for another slower white forward like okay. me. <laughs> okay, okay. And uh, so I was like, okay, but I wasn't done playing ball. So I was introduced to another coach up from Portland who was now coaching in Istanbul. Mm -hmm. So I ended up playing basketball for six months professionally with Galatasaray, one of the big club teams in Istanbul for you, about six months. What was that like? That was wild, right? How old were you doing this time? How old I was twenty-one years old. Twenty-one years, years old, yeah. Going to Istanbul. Istanbul, right? So I was back, you know, back in the day, yeah. Back in the day, midnight run. That's Istanbul, right. That's right. That's right. right. If you think about it, um, and it was a blast. You didn't feel any of that. No, no. So everything wasn't in gray, like we've been told. No. <laughs> you remember you know. everything. Everything in that time was supposed to be gray. The only yeah. thing that was in color was America, the West. Dude, the Grand Bazaar, the food, the people, the mosques, the, the Bosphorus is just amazing. Right? And they told me what they the do for their kids. They said the parks for the kids are just phenomenal. Yeah, you know, yeah. I live fairly close to um, one of the the, the seas. It's there, and it's just the people were amazing. They they knew I played for the big Galatasaray club team, and so they took care of me really well. Um, actually, the only issues I had were with the other foreign players on the team, <laughs> who saw me as a threat, right? Yeah, right, right. You know course. the competitiveness. So, but I was a good buffer between the Turks and the American players, and I had a blast for six months, and then they decided to go in a different direction. I came back, and there was a letter on my athletic director's desk at Santa Clara saying Toyota Tsusho's looking for a basketball player slash international trainee, business trainee in Japan, and that was when Japan could say no. That's right. Right? That's right. That's right. The bubble economy, everything was booming. 
Money everywhere. So there was money all over the place, and I was like, sign me up. <laughs> I'm ready to go. I'm ready to go. <laughs> you know, hop off the plane in Osaka, get on the Shinkansen to Nagoya. You know, so you had no like your family was okay with all of this. They never had any concerns whatsoever about you leaving them. Your mom didn't say, "Come on, baby, don't go." You're she my had, second she son. had four others, man. So right. She, she had did, four yeah, others. She was good. Um, so you kind of snuck through that no, way. No, she, they, they were so supportive. Again, raising us in such an open family. Like I said, did right? they encourage you to travel? Did yeah, because you wanted, did all the time, right? They wanted you know, with with Japan, with at Santa Clara, being at Santa Clara, we. Traveled, I traveled with a team to Hong Kong, an all-star team to Hong Kong. Um, you know, and then just being raised in San Jose, it's one of the largest Japanese communities in, in the United, the, States, in the United right. States. That's right. So I was raised with a lot of Japanese friends. And we had um, Chiono Fuji. Before he was Chiono Fuji coming, they did a summer sumo tournament at our high school. Wow. You know, so I was up setting up, hanging the Hinomaru next to the U.S. flag up in the rafters. and selling drinks with my basketball team at the games. Did you start speaking Japanese then? Did you try to? No, I, I learned a little, you know, my, one of my favorite teachers of all times was my third grade teacher, Ms. Takata, in elementary school. And she was Nisei, and she taught us, you know, how to use chopsticks, and konnichiwa, and arigato gozaimasu, and so a little then, you know, gave us our first taste of sushi and right, right. stuff like that. But it was always, it was always a piece, right? My nickname Yukio is like, I'm, I was meant to be here, or something, right? <laughs> Think about it now. It's like, oh, okay, of course. He's in Tokyo. He's in Japan. He's been there for thirty plus years now. Wow. Yeah. So you, so you, did you always? When did you think you wanted to come to Japan? Or was this something you that, really wanted, or you just really didn't care? No. No, I wanted to play ball, really. It didn't matter where you were it at. It didn't matter where I was at, at that point. Um, and the opportunity, the fact that it was business, international trainee, to go along with playing ball just was like, really? So I was working in international joint ventures at Toyota Tsusho during the day, mm -hmm. practicing with the team at night. Mm -hmm. well, what about marriage? I mean, your wife? How, did you date her for a long time? Or? We met, actually, I was coming to Tokyo to visit a friend who was playing professional. We played ball at Santa Clara together, and he was in Tokyo playing for Kumagaigumi, who was in Tokyo. So I came up here, and we mixed and met, and it happened that we just kind of hit it off. All her friends told her, he's too tall, he's too tall, and she's like, no, he's kind of nice. And so we had this long-distance relationship, Nagoya, Tokyo. I was actually writing letters at the time. Okay. You know, That's so really back in the day. right, um, talking every now and then, and when I had games up here, we'd try to find time to get together, and you know, it worked out. How long? How long of a romance was that? So I came to Japan in '89. We probably met in '92, so th about three years. Okay. So yeah, so Before a couple years. Yeah, so I was here for a year or two, and then I met her. And then we dated for about three years before we were married. Wow. Yeah. And you got married here in Japan? We actually got married, you know, of course, we went to the Kuyak show and we signed the papers here. Um, but then we also went to the U.S. Embassy and then we went and had our ceremony up in Portola Valley, up on the mount at a winery up above Stanford University. Now, wh Stanford why, why did you do it that one? 
Um, we wanted to do something outside. We wanted to do it in California, so we were looking at, you know, the, um, you know, the Exploratorium and the stuff in San Francisco where mm -hmm. the park is, where they had the uh, World Fair. We were thinking about trying to do something there. I had hired a uh, wedding consultant, and she started showing me different places, and Fogarty Winery up on this hill overlooking the entire Santa Clara Valley came up, and I was like, that's pretty nice. Did you have a lot of people at your wedding? Yeah, we had two, about 200. Yeah, yeah, we had a lot of people there. And both mom and dad, everybody was there. Your mom and, and dad, cousins, aunts, uncles, good contingent from Japan showed up. Um, Masaharu, who nicknamed me, came in. Wow. So, yeah, so it was pretty special. That is neat, that's neat. Yeah. So you only planned on doing that once. That was the plan, and so far so good, right? <laughs> Knock on wood, and she's long as she doesn't come to her senses me, and wait, realize she made a mistake. You, how many kids do you, you have? Just one daughter. One daughter. That's oh, that's right. Yeah. You're the daughter. Yeah. She's tall enough for everybody. She is. She's you know. How tall is she now? Almost six feet tall, or that's right. One one eighty. Because she she shot up real quick, and then I yeah. think she started to taper off real quick too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She was yeah, right. taller than her mom. That's right. In like. Sixth grade or something, right? Yeah, now she's a wonderful young lady. She ended up Nishimachi for all 10 years. Right. She went to boarding school in California at Kate School, mm -hmm. in, you know, another beautiful place right up on a Mesa in Santa Barbara area. Right. And then she got accepted to Tufts University. To study what? what to study studying? international relations and economics, which she ended up graduating a dual major with a okay. minor in education. So what's she doing now? So she was in Boston for a couple years working with Wayfair, doing some online um, data analytic campaigns and product management. And then she moved to Rotterdam. Her boyfriend, who she met while she was here volunteering in a program in Japan, mm -hmm. is Dutch. and. They, he came to Boston and they had this, again, COVID relationship going on for a while and he was able to come and visit her and yeah, we, we like the way this works and the way this feels and we want to be together and so Mira's like, okay, I'll, I'll go to Rotterdam. I've had enough of California. You know, I, I did Japan, I did California, I did the East Coast. Next move is Europe, right? Is that where she is now? And she's in Rotterdam, yeah, in Holland, in Netherlands. Now she's working in fintech. She's online again. She's a product owner for one of the banks, um, online banking in in the Netherlands. And it's not exactly what she wants to do, but she realizes, you know, data analytics, if that's where things are going, right? Mm -hmm. If you understand the numbers and what things mean, then you can apply it to anything. It, it be could be anywhere. education. It could be business. It could be finance. It could be, you know, Whatever it could be, uh, you know, an NPO, anything. As long as you can understand and actually manipulate what's being done online, mm. then you're really valuable anywhere. So she's is she thinking about doing her own, or is she? Um, is she's considering going back to get a graduate's degree. She's not sure whether it's education or more IT and data mm -hmm. focused, um, but she's. She's not. She's more of a company person right now. Mm -hmm. She's not the entrepreneur. Her boyfriend's the entrepreneur. What does he do? He does online trading, and he, okay. he you know he puts his own algorithm together, and is a very intelligent individual. 
Is he dealing in traditional inferred currency or? Yeah, currency. He does bonds. He does. He puts his uh, ETFs together. Okay. Um, you know, and he mm -hmm. he 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 does that. I. We have a little investment with him, so he's doing okay. We keep an eye on him. <laughs> he has a little of our. Just to find out where he's at. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but uh, no, and they're happy, and they're they're really good for each other. So they're actually going to be coming to Japan uh, next week. So we're excited to have well, them here good, for a yes. few weeks. Yeah. Well, that's why I was in a hurry to get you on the podcast because yeah. I know once they come here, yeah, that's where all your focus is going to be. Definitely. So tell me, Dan, how has Japan? been for you because I know that we talked, we used to talk when you had your daughter at Nishimachi because mm -hmm. it was me, you, and Todd. We'd right. talk and I had my philosophy, Todd had his. What'd you end up doing with yourself basically, let's say, in a financial sense? How do you deal with being here? You know, there's good and bad, I think. I think being so close to my family and having such a close-knit family, it's hard to be away. Things happen. Um, I found, especially initially, I would go back to the U.S. expecting everything to be the same, and of course it isn't. You know, with friends, with college friends, people are moving around, people are gaining weight, people are losing hair. You know, there's all these things that are happening, and it's like, okay, I'm missing out on being part of some of that. And so that was hard. Um, but at the same time, being here and making a name for myself, and it's fun to be recognized, you know. Oh, why Stan? You're, you play basketball, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it doesn't happen as often these days, but every now and then it still does. Maybe that's what drew me back to working with kids and kind of being in the spotlight again and really authentic, being authentic with them. And they understand when you're telling them the right things and you're showing them the good stuff. And okay. Yeah. You know, I've been lucky because my wife, also works and she's been very successful. What is she doing now? Um, she's actually the director for Air Canada for Asia Pacific. So she's How long in charge has she been of doing that? She's been with Air Canada since 2007, I believe, 2009. And what did so she do prior to that? Was she she was with United Airlines. Oh, so she's always She was always airline. in the airline industry um, for 19 years with United. Um, she rose up to Honglucho level with United, so quite successful there. And, and what, what does she do again for the airlines? Um, so she is the director of sales and marketing for Asia Pacific for Air okay. Canada. Okay. Right. So she came in, started as they, she got headhunted, pulled over to Air Canada from United, um, started as sa country sales manager, or country yeah sales and marketing manager, and then moved up to GM general manager first woman to head a foreign airlines in Japan. Um, and then they got smart and decided they wanted to keep using her talent and she got the part position of director of Asia Pacific. So congratulations. Yeah, That's so fantastic. she's in China and Korea and Australia and New Zealand and she's all over the place these days. But um, it's, it's allowed me to kind of help raise our daughter at the time. Um, because I was a basketball player, I had a lot more free time during the mornings and during the day, and our daughter would come to practice with me, and it was easy. Um, it's allowed me to step away from sports business and give me a little more flexibility as well to go back and not worry about my salary as much right. and be able to come back and work with kids and work with education and do something I'm really passionate about, um, which I really appreciate her for because she... She likes her job, 
and she's, she's passionate, good at it. and she's very good at it. <laughs> she's good at it, right. she's very good at it, but at the same time, it's got to be frustrating too. It's like, oh, you get to go play with the kids again. I got to, oh, you know. Yes. She so was there's, it's a different, it's a different stress, and it's a different thing. And so that understanding, and probably don't say it enough, and don't tell her enough. Um, so hopefully she'll get a chance well, to see now. this, tell right? Her yeah, now. yeah, she yeah. knows. She knows now. So tell her how much you care about. Um, yeah, so it's a good balance between the two of us, and I think trying to get her involved with some of the things I do as well. Um, we just had the NBA games, Japan games here in Japan, and, and I saw both of you because you had that posted all over. Yeah, 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 yeah. So we had a chance to um, put together a few things. I've worked with Rock Ten in the past, and with Stephen Curry when he came to Japan for the underrated tour in 2019 before the COVID hit. And so I had good connections, and they called me and said, "Can we do anything? What can we do? Who should we talk to? Where can we go? Is there, you know, a children's home or something that we can do a NBA cares thing for?" And so I gave them some ideas, and they got back to us, and they got us in touch with the Wizards, who wanted to do something in Tokyo, and the Wizards put together all these care packages for kids, probably about 60, 70 care packages for all the kids at the center at the home. And then we went and delivered them on Sunday. Just now, these are kids that have what, what's the situation? A lot different. No, it's not just orphanage, right? There's some that come it, from this abused homes. This, this isn't isn't an orphanage. It's it depends on your definition of orphanage, okay. right? So you know, we think orphanage. We think kids without parents. Of course. Um, this is more of a children's home where they take in. It could be abused kids. It could be parents can't afford economic issues that they couldn't take care of them. It could be there something happened to their parents. Mm -hmm. It could be they were abandoned at an early age. Where is this place located? Is it several places? Um, this is out in Kitaku okay. in Tokyo. So out How many kids are there? there? There are, I think they said 150 total. Okay. And they're in the process of rebuilding the whole center, the facility, and the Wizards were really happy to do something with them. And they actually are in the process of wanting to donate a little more, mm -hmm. so maybe they can build a little half court outside in the, you know, play area that they're going to be putting together. So mm -hmm. we went and delivered all those bags. We did a little basketball fun day with them out in the courtyard. I saw that. Yeah, that was out in the middle. Yeah. Was that the courtyard or was it in the street? It was, yeah, well, yeah. They're in, because they haven't built the whole uh, play area. Okay, because it looked like yeah. a So we were, yeah, it was just the, the street. street out right. in front. Yeah, it's, yeah. you know, it's a closed off street. It's within right. the facility. Oh. I just met up with an old friend of mine yesterday who was in town with the Warriors. He's a personal trainer, Dante Hill. And we were just sitting and talking over at the um, Staya. Down right over right here in Rapungi area and having a coffee and catching up and you know he does he does his leadership and I was asking him like well how working with these amazing athletes that are at the top level how do you create something that is going to keep them engaged make them want to come back make them you know, really better even to get them to that next level. What do you have to say? So his point was that first you, you got to study. You got to know who you're working with, right? It takes time. It, you look, you have to understand what he can do and where his weaknesses and strengths are. 
then of course they're, they all have egos. To get to that level of anything, you have to have an ego to be competitive and kind of push people out of the way sometimes. But he says you keep it real and you tell them, look, I can see you can't, this is where you need work. And, and they know. So if you, most, if you point it out people, well, right? they'll know. Yeah. yeah. And, and they knew before, right? Right. <laughs> Athletes, they, they knew before. And uh, so it's a matter of reaching that and saying, okay, so we start here and we do this and then we add, right? It's step by step and we add. And I think that's one of the things I wish some of the younger kids and younger players could see. Right now they turn on YouTube or they turn on something and see Steph shooting the threes and they don't realize that he's in the gym six hours a day before, you know, besides what he does at practice with the team, working on fundamental basketball that is going to give him that foundation and that base for the success that he has. Mm -hmm. um, so hopefully, you know, that'll dribble down a little bit. But you find that even here when you're working with the kids that you come in with, which are a lot of expats, do you mm -hmm. deal with a lot of Japanese directly that aren't involved some, in the Some, community? right. The, the, the club has a few more, okay. has a lot, quite a, quite a few Japanese right. members. But, they, but they've already, but the difference is they've come into this point. See, they've, they've, chosen, they've, agreed, this, yes. they've chosen to agree to yeah. this. Now, I yeah. think it'd be a little bit different if you went outside to the domestic yeah. area. I don't think they would be as high strung, first of all, as some of these kids may be. Yes. They'd be a little more timid, a little more mm -hmm. forgiving. They'll accept what you have to say. Yeah, and I work with a <laughs> couple of Japanese partners as well at a, a group called Spoglish, Sports English. And that's, that's focused good. on Japanese kids and teaching them English in an athletic environment, right? So we do drills, agility drills. We do reaction drills. We do quickness drills. We do ball handling drills in a small space. And it's a matter of breaking down those walls for the young Japanese kids to let them know that English isn't so hard. Mm -hmm. You know, it starts up, up, down, right, left, no, run, exactly. run, run, jump, jump, jump. And with that U.S. coaching energy, right? Mm -hmm. That style where they just forget about everything and just start answering and speaking. And it's not my name is. Right. It's, exactly. you know, Coach Dan and, yeah. okay, let's go, let's go, let's go. And it's, it's a great program. And so, uh, so that's the other side, right? You're talking to all these Japanese kids, and so you have kids coming through who are, again, timid. Mm -hmm. But in a few weeks, a month or two months, they're like front of the class getting close to you, and okay, let's go, let's go. Where do you see yourself now? Where are you going, Dan, from now? <sighs> wow. You know, I think it's a transition somewhat for me. You know, I love coaching. I love being on the court with kids. You know, maybe it's time to see if I can get involved with a few other things now that COVID's kind of, things are opening up. Um, there's more opportunities out there again to get involved on a different level. What are those levels? Um, it could be working with a company that's involved with sports and kids and education and coming in and helping manage projects and do things that way. Um, of course, I'm, I'm going to stay at the club and work with kids here as long as possible because that's a joy and it's something that gives back to me as much as I give to it um, but at the same time finding something that I can love just as much and feel that I'm making a difference doing something that matters and helping other people 
Um, at this point in my life, we've, you know, we've done well. My wife and I have done well. And we're coming to that point where we're supposed to retire, right? And we aren't ready for it. So where are we going to be and what can we do together maybe? Something that we can start putting together and, and work together on something that we've been doing different things for so long that it might be good to, you know, find that passion that we can grow and, and build together and move on to the next stage in our lives. My final question, mm -hmm. what advice would Dan now give the 20 year old Dan? Don't be so worried about what other people think. For whatever reason, I was, you know, being a pl basketball player and an athlete, you're in, you're in the spotlight, people are watching you, but, and you don't worry about making mistakes on the court. But when I was in, a, when I was in groups, even now sometimes I catch myself learning Japanese or speaking Japanese, um, oh, I don't want to make a mistake. I don't want to look bad or what, does that, what's, what are they going to think if I say something that they don't agree with. Um, but I would tell myself, don't worry about what other people think. You know, you, be you and be happy with what you say because that's what you want to say, not because what you think other people want you to say, right? So. I think I'm getting there. I'm still working on it. You know, there's, there's always, there's always something that you can get frustrated with. But again, if you can keep it in the moment and live for the now, then your mistakes and the things that you wish you would have done go away, and you and you do what you can, and you enjoy what you know, you enjoy your life a lot more. Well said, Dan. Thank you so much, buddy. My pleasure. Thank you. My pleasure. I want to thank all of you for watching this podcast. Make sure you press like and subscribe. And remember, it's all on loan, so reach for the stars because you're too blessed to be stressed.